Uh, so whether you're with us here or online, I encourage you to follow along from our reading in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as you're taking a seat, let me, let me pray for us as we continue in worship together. Father in heaven, we pause in this time to declare that what we believe is that you are, you are here, you are present, you are near to us. So Lord, as we, as we continue in this season of Advent, as we celebrate and remember your coming to this earth to rescue and redeem us, Lord, we long for your second Advent. Lord, as we wait and as we long, may we be a people who are able to hear from you, live for you, delight in you in all things. May this time of worship as we hear from your word, may it be a means by which you form us and shape us to love Jesus and love the things that he loves. And so, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are in the, the season of Advent. This is our, our second week in Advent, and this is a time when the people of Jesus re-enter the story of God entering into our world in the person of Christ Jesus. It's the time when we rem remember that the infinite took on finitude, the time when, when divinity took on humanity, when heaven came to earth. And, and, and even if you're not a Christian, we're, we're somewhat familiar with the kind of general Christian narrative of, of God coming to earth in, in the form of baby Jesus. We, we kind of get that. But what's interesting is that Christians, many Christians, struggle to see that same phenomenon of heaven coming to earth as the final realization of heaven forever, heaven coming to earth. We, we tend to have a different picture in our minds of what heaven is. And just, just think about it this way. When I say the word heaven, odds are the first image that kind of enters your mind's eye is something more akin to, to this. A picture of heaven looks like this. You're probably thinking that. Some of you probably, yeah, it was kind of like clouds in the sky, bright white. That's probably the image. Now, th this was literally the first image that popped up in my, my Google research when I just typed in heaven, the first image that popped up. And here's the second image that popped up. And so that's just terrifying. So Merry Christmas. I hope you like nightmares. But just like when you look at this, it's like, like this is heaven. This is our picture of heaven, like uh, pass, I guess. I'd rather not. Like the, why, why do we have these strange images of heaven in our minds? I, I think we tend to see heaven as this place that's this disembodied ethereal realm that we float up to in the sky where we live forever on clouds and with harps. 
And, and I think a big part of this is that our theology, I mentioned this when I preached on hell, uh, is that our theology of heaven tends to be shaped more by cartoons than theology. The idea of heaven is just, yeah, I wish I'd brought a magazine. Heaven is just this kind of innocuous, inconsequential place that's of, real, of no real substance and meaning. And when this is our expectation of heaven, what I, I, I fear will take place in, in our minds and hearts, whether you're a Christian or not, is, is a growing disinterest in the things of Jesus, a disillusionment in his gospel, and a disenchantment in the miracle that God has entered into our world in the person of Jesus to redeem us and rescue us. I think we have a very misunder, a, a great impoverished understanding of what heaven is. Which is why during this Advent season, we're entering into the reality and the truth of what heaven is in our series that we're calling, What Are We Waiting For? This Advent season, as we mentioned, is the time of remembering God coming to earth as we long for his second coming when heaven and earth will be made one. And what I want us to explore today, if there's one thing you take from our time, I want it to be this, is that heaven is closer than we think. Heaven is closer than than we think. If you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Ben shared with us how the hope of heaven is a comfort to us now. In the midst of great trouble and heartache and pain, we can all identify with that. And hope, the hope of heaven brings a comfort to us now. But today, what I want to show is why the hope of heaven is a hope. Why it is a comfort to us now. And the first thing I want us to see together is this, is that heaven will be more familiar than we realize. Heaven will be more familiar than we realize. And I want to show us, when we go back to Revelation, so if you were with us, we were in the Revelation series for quite some time. Some of you are like, we're going back to Revelation just for a little bit, okay? It'll be wonderful and painless, I assure you. But, but in this, I want us to see that the draw to heaven, the very reason why heaven is appealing to people is in, in how profoundly different it is from earth. I mean, earth has a proclivity towards death and decay and destruction, we long for heaven precisely because heaven isn't earth. But when we read the biblical authors, we find that there is actually more similarity and familiarity between earth and heaven than we may realize. That heaven will actually look more like the earth we now see than the heaven we tend to envision in our imagination. And I want to show us this in Revelation 21. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation 21 and look with me at verses 1 and 2. This is John's revelation of what is to come, and he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what do we see in this picture? What, what is the image? We, we don't see disembodied souls escaping to an ethereal realm in the sky, Rather, we see a heavenly city descending upon earth where heaven and earth will be united as one completely and forever. It is not about souls escaping this earth, but heaven coming to this earth. And this, this imagery is meant to tell us something about the reality and the place of heaven, namely that heaven will be a physical place. Heaven will be this earth restored, renewed, transformed, and renovated. Which is why Jesus, in declaring what his plan is for heaven and earth, in verse 5, declares these words. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things, what is it, church? New. Notice. 
that he doesn't say, behold, I am making all new things. It is not, I'm scrapping the original plan and starting over with something entirely different. He is saying, I am making all things new. The restoration of what God had created originally to be good is his plan. He is, not dis, uh, he is not disregarding or discrediting or discarding, rather, his original plan of his people dwelling with him on earth forever. That was the original plan in the garden, and it's his continued plan for heaven. Let, let me illustrate it this way. I, I recently had the joy of actually remodeling our, our downstairs bathroom, and it was actually a joyful experience with very little cursing, and so I think I'm maturing as a human being. Uh, but it was truly a joyful experience, and, and the, the best part of kind of a remodeling job is kind of the before and after pictures, right? You, you see what it was before, and then you get to see what it was after. So there's a sense of joy of moving from, from this, I have a picture of another bathroom here, so this is it, to the final product of this. It's different, right? It's wonderful. It's joyful. You see the contrast. You see what it was in the beginning and what it was in the end. But imagine, just, just, just go with me for a second, imagine if my plan, instead of remodeling my bathroom, was to build a really nice outhouse in my backyard. So what if I were to tell my family, hey, instead of using indoor plumbing, uh, I would love to build this lovely, kind of rustic, beautiful outhouse. It would be ridiculous to abandon the original plan of having indoor plumbing for an outside uh, bathroom would be ridiculous. Because my plan isn't to abandon the original bathroom, it is to remodel it, to remake it in the same way. The way we tend to think about heaven is this, is that God created the earth, and it fell into decay and destruction and rebellion, and so he's just going to destroy it, and then take us away to something entirely different. And that is not the story of the scriptures. That is not God's plan. He is not abandoning his original plan, like I said, of dwelling with his people on earth forever. But this is how we tend to think of heaven. But when we read the Bible diachronically, which is a fancy word to impress your friends with, it means just across time, we see that from the garden in Genesis to the new city in Revelation, God's plan is about restoring his created world and moving things back to the place where heaven and earth are one once again. And just like in the garden... God is inviting his people to be co-creators and re-creators with him in this world to make all things new. In his great book, Culture Making, Andy Crouch talks about what the work of heaven will be like and what God is inviting us into now and forever. And he says this, our eternal life in God's recreated world will be the fulfillment of what God originally asked us to do cultivating and creating in full and lasting relationship with our creator. But this time, of course, we will not just be tending a garden, we will be sustaining the life of a city, a harmonious human society that has developed all the potentialities hidden in the original creation to their fullest. And Crouch goes on to say, culture redeemed, transformed, and permeated by the presence of God will be the activity of eternity. Isn't that more beautiful and compelling, inspiring and motivating than the idea of floating up to a cloud forever in some ethereal realm? This is the picture of heaven that the biblical authors give us because heaven is closer than we think. So if this is true, if this is the picture of the place of heaven, then one major implication that this has for us as the people of Jesus is this, is that our work matters. 
As Pastor Ben was praying for us, recognizing that God is the first worker and creator, and his plan is to continue to create and recreate with his people, this has great implications for how we spend our time now in joining God in his work of making all things new. If this is the story of God and what he is doing, leading his creation toward this end, then as followers of Jesus, we should ask ourselves this question of how do we work and to what end are we working? Whether it is paid or unpaid or in the home or outside the home, how do we view our work in light of heaven, in light of God's reign and his plan to restore and make all things new? So whether your work is at a desk, whether it's on a job site, in a classroom, whether it's in a warehouse or in your home, we as followers of Jesus should ask ourselves this question. Am I working in such a way that God would say to me, I want what you do and how you do it to be in heaven forever? I want to say that again. Do we work in such a way that God would look upon us and say, I want what you do and how you do it to be in heaven forever. This has major implications for how we spend the majority of our time as followers of Jesus. It is not about believing in some random list of doctrines waiting until Jesus comes back. God has invited us into his work of redeeming and restoring all things through Christ and awaiting the day when heaven and earth will be made new. So as followers of Jesus, we must see that our work matters to Jesus and Jesus matters to our work. So heaven will be more familiar than we realize. But, but secondly, heaven will also be more embodied than we expect. Heaven will be more embodied than we expect. Let me explain what I mean by this. To understand heaven as an embodied reality, we have to understand the resurrection of Jesus. So I know it's Christmas, but we're going to sprinkle in a little Easter here free of charge. That's, that's, that's for you, okay? But, but here's what I want us to understand. The reason why heaven is the Christian hope and not merely Christian wishful thinking is because it is rooted in the real historical resurrection of Jesus. And one of the more extensive teachings on the resurrection in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, is 1 Corinthians 15. I would encourage you to spend some time this week. It's a long, it's a long chapter, but I encourage you to spend some time in this chapter reflecting on the beauty, the trustworthiness, the power and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. But I want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 17 and 19. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Now, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, when you read this, and again, I encourage you to read all of 1 Corinthians 15. When you read it, it doesn't read like fantasy. It doesn't read like folklore or legend. It, it reads like a convincing argument. What Paul is saying here is that the hope of heaven is substantiated in, rooted in, founded upon the historical resurrection of Jesus that happened in real time and space. Jesus promised heaven to his people and showed us that life after death is really possible by raising himself from the dead. And because of this, because of this foundation, we have reason to trust in heaven as an embodied reality, which is what Paul says later on in verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
So what this means is that followers of Jesus believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you also should believe in your own bodily resurrection, which is sometimes hard for us to get our minds around. Like, yeah, we believe that Jesus was resurrected, but, but that also means we will be resurre- resurrected bodily. Because by faith, we share in Jesus' life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And Paul continues to build this argument in verses 47 and 49. The first man was from the earth, referring to Adam, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, meaning that we are subject to death, we who are in Christ shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Christians believe what, whatever heaven is and whatever it will be like, Christians believe that we will experience all of the joys of heaven as gloriously embodied beings, not ethereal, angelic kind of souls floating in the ether, but we will enjoy Jesus and all of his good gifts, but with an infinite capacity for sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. It's what Paul describes earlier in 1 Corinthians 13. As we read these words in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. So we we get a taste of heaven because heaven is broken in through Christ. We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face with the Lord Jesus. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When I was a sophomore in high school, I remember seeing my favorite band, Everclear, live in concert. And, and I was, this was one of my favorite rock bands. I remember listening to all their albums on the terrible stereo in my bedroom. And, and I thought it was great. Their music was awesome. But when I saw them live, my, my world was rocked. My, my 17-year-old person, I looked like I was 12 at the time, but I can't believe they let me do a rock concert. But I remember when I heard them live, like the, the bass was deeper. The drums were louder. The guitars were heavier. The vocals were clearer. The body odor was greater. Everything was just greater in this live experience. The sounds, everything was more real than real. In the same way, heaven will be more real than real. The colors will be brighter. The the, the flavors will be fuller. The sounds will be clearer. The joys will be greater. When we understand that heaven is an embodied experience, where we have endless capacity to enjoy Jesus and his good gifts, it transforms the way we think about heaven and how we live on earth now. So if heaven will be a more embodied experience than we expect, then the implication for us is this, that our joy matters. Our joy matters. If we want to be a people who are ready for heaven, then we should practice joy now. And what better time than in the season of joy, of of Advent? And when I say practice joy, I mean two things. One, I mean that we must guard against pseudo-joys. And by by pseudo-joy, what I mean is those those hollow joys that we go after that leave us even more hollow than before. You see, there are all these pseudo-joys that may be good in of themselves, but we pursue them to find meaningful joy, but they leave us hollow because we are not going after the enjoyment of God through that good thing. For example, we will struggle to enjoy God's good gift of community and fellowship if we settle for the pseudo-joy of of social media. We will struggle to enjoy God's good gift of of intimacy if we settle for the pseudo-joy of things like pornography. 
Or we will struggle to enjoy God's good gift of feasting if we settle for the pseudo-joy of just gorging ourselves. Pseudo-joys leave us more hollow than they found us. But the second way we practice joy is by cultivating gratitude. I'm deeply convinced that, that joy is the fruit that grows from the seeds of gratitude in our life. The fruit of joy, and especially in this season, we know this all too well, that when we are so focused on, on ourselves and on all the things that we want and don't get, we find ourselves more sorrowful and rotten. But when our focus is on enjoying the good things that we have now, delighting in the gifts that God has given us now and being grateful for what we have, we find a joy that, that we could never find in getting everything we wanted on our Amazon Prime wish list. If you and I want to be ready for heaven, we should be people who practice joy now. And that means growing in gratitude to God for all of his good gifts, rejoicing in him as the giver of all good things. And so we have seen thus far that heaven will be more familiar than we realize. Heaven will be more embodied than we expect. So our work matters and our joy matters. But lastly, heaven will be more glorious than we imagine. Heaven will be more glorious than we imagine. Now, let, let me explain what I mean. On a very basic level, we all know that our joy in something increases when we share it with others. We all know that. Like when you, when you, when you experience a great burger, like my, my family and I, we actually had some delicious tacos this week. And I know I try to find ways to talk about tacos in almost every sermon, but we had some delicious tacos. And there's, you just can't help but like enjoy and see the joy of others as they're experiencing it with you. Joy increases when we share it with others. And we know this to be true, like joy is multiplied when it is couched within relationship. So think about it this way. Kids, I want, you to, I want you to imagine Christmas morning, okay, when you wake up on Christmas morning and you go downstairs in the living room or upstairs, depending on the, you know, the layout of the architecture of your home, uh, you go to Christmas, uh, the Christmas tree, there's gifts under the, under the tree, but your parents are nowhere to be found. You would freak out, Right? Right? <laughs> like, maybe it just depends. It just depends on the family. But here's the thing. Truly, like, we, we would not enjoy Christmas if our loved ones weren't there. Christmas is Christmas precisely because of the people that we love, the presence that we share with them. Not presents. It's, it's hard to, you know, do that. Yeah, presents. You get it. The, the idea here is that heaven, in the same way, the joy of heaven is found in the fact that we get to delight in Jesus and that Jesus delights in us forever. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 65, probably one of my favorite sections of Scripture, Isaiah is giving this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, same language that's used in Revelation 21. And in chapter 65, verses 17 and 18, we read these words, For behold, so God is declaring what we just heard in Revelation 21, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So these two verses are basically the summation of the whole sermon up until this point. Heaven will be the, the transformation of this earth. God is creating and recreating and inviting us to join him in this work. And we find joy in all of God's good gifts. But as I was studying and reflecting on this passage, there was something that struck me afresh. I mean, I've read this passage dozens and dozens of times. And there was something that struck me afresh in what is recorded immediately after that in verse 19. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem 
and be glad in my people. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Heaven will not just be a place that we enjoy because Jesus is there. That's true. It will also be a place of great joy because Jesus will enjoy us forever. Which sounds kind of strange and maybe even self-centered. Like, well, should we be talking about that? Like, shouldn't the focus only be on Jesus? But notice what God is saying about heaven. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Who, who will be the most joyful person in heaven? It will be Jesus. It will be Jesus, not just because he has an infinite capacity of joy that far exceeds our own, but because Jesus will have the joy of delighting in his people as they delight in him. Heaven will be an unending place where Jesus will enjoy us as we enjoy him and his good gifts. This is what worship is, to delight in Jesus and him responding and delighting in us as we delight in him. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Um, last week, I was uh, throwing the Frisbee with my, my son, Edmund. It was a ton of fun, right? Yeah, it was. And we were playing Frisbee, and, and he loved it. It was a ton of fun, and I was loving it. But there, was, there were these levels of joy that I was noticing in him. As, as I would throw the Frisbee to him, and he would catch it, he would, like, he would like laugh and smile. It was great. But I, I, I noticed a third layer of joy. Like, he was enjoying the Frisbee, and I was enjoying it with him. And I was enjoying watching him, but then I saw his face light up when he saw my face light up. And so what that means is that Edmund was enjoying Frisbee, and he was enjoying me, enjoying him, enjoying Frisbee. Did you follow that? I might need a whiteboard for that one. But do you get like, there's a level of enjoying something. We all know the, the experience of enjoying something we love. But there's something entirely different when someone who loves you is watching you and enjoying you, enjoying the thing that you're experiencing. That is heaven on an infinite level to a maximal degree of joy. But the joys will be greater, and the someone that loves us is far greater, for it is Jesus Christ. When this is the place of heaven that awaits us, who are in Christ Jesus, we find that this is a far different picture than just escape and rescue from the decay of this world. And so if this is the reality, if heaven will be more glorious than we imagine, then what this means is that our worship matters. Our worship matters. We all worship something. Whether you believe in God or not, we all worship something. That is unavoidable. We all build our lives around something that we hope will give us meaning, identity, significance, and joy. We are wired for awe and transcendence. And the season of Christmas awakens us to that reality. But, but here's the question. If we're going to worship something, if we're going to build our lives around something, then we ought to make sure that it is something or namely someone that has our best interests at heart and who delights in us, who seeks our good, and who says, I am glad in my people. Who else better to worship and build your life upon than Jesus Christ, the one who left heaven to enter earth so that he might live, die, and rise again, so that we might share in his life, death, and resurrection. Who else better to worship than the one who delights in his people, who finds joy in his people, enjoying him? If you want to be ready for heaven, then we need to be a people who worship Jesus now, 
We tend to think that like, yeah, I'll, I'll get serious about my faith later on and like, I just, I just want to kind of get to heaven. If you do not delight in Jesus and love Jesus and love the things that Jesus loves, you are not going to enjoy heaven. And so as we think about being a people who are ready for heaven, may we be a people who, who pray to Jesus, who learn about Jesus, who serve with Jesus, speak of Jesus, and live for Jesus in all things as the object of our worship who brings us maximal joy in this world when there are so many other pseudo-joys that we give our attention and affections to. And as we worship Jesus together, we will experience in part what it means that heaven is closer than we think. And not just because heaven is coming to earth, but because heaven is already broken in. Again, at Advent, we remember the time that God has entered our world and we long for his return. During Advent, we remember that, that our God did not come as a spirit to, to rescue us and release us from earth, but he came as a baby in blood and flesh and bone to redeem us and to set the earth free from its bondage and decay. Jesus came as the embodied Son of God who took on flesh to ransom us as we sing. He came to this broken earth to have his body broken and torn apart so that heaven and earth might be made one again, and that we, as his people through Christ, might be made one with our God forever and ever. Amen? That's the hope of heaven. That's why Jesus has come. This is why we gather week after week to declare who Jesus is and who we are in light of him. It's why we come to the Lord's table week after week to declare and to remember in a very tangible and physical way the reality of our tangible and physical Savior. We come to the Lord's table to partake in bread and the cup to declare to one another and to ourselves that our hope is in a real and physical Jesus who, who truly, really, physically was resurrected that points to our hope in a heaven that is real and physical. You see, heaven on earth is more than just a prayer. It is a promise sealed by the Lord Jesus in his coming, in his living, in his dying, in his rising, and in his returning. Amen? That is our hope. So whether you are, you are with us here in, in this room, whether you are with us online, Jesus invites all who are his, all who have placed their hope in him and the heaven that is to come, to feast with him. We celebrate and remember this feast of what Christ has done as we remember and await the day when we will feast with Jesus forever in the new heaven and new earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you are the God of highest heaven, but you are also the creator of the earth and all who dwell within it. And Lord, we rejoice and thank you that your plan has been to redeem and restore that which you have created. And by your grace, you have invited us to be a part of what you are doing in this world as we long for kingdom come, as we long for heaven and earth to be one again. Lord, I pray that you would show us how this deeply impacts the way in which we live our lives in this world through, through our work, through our service, through our play, through our joys, through our worship. So, Lord, for those who are in Christ, would you, would you inspire them? Would you compel them to love you and love the things that you love as we wait, await heaven? But, Lord, for those who are far from you, would you draw them near? Would you show them that their hope is in you?
and that you are the one who has come to, to say that you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased that is available and afforded to them through your life, death, and resurrection. Lord Jesus, may we be a people who work to your glory, rejoice in your glory, and worship for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.